Hey guys, Merry Christmas and welcome back to another edition of AFK Discussions. I am Jason and with me as always is my brother from another mother, Mr. Ty. Taekwon, what up buddy? How's it going? What up man? Not much, just chilling, you know, recording. Um, yeah, we had some technical difficulties earlier on in the week, so we're recording a little bit later, but uh, we're doing it. We're here. So I'd like to welcome back my good friend, Mr. Brad C. Hudson. Hey guys. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, dude, you're always welcome here, man. And I know last time we kind of wanted to do ghost stories, we didn't really get around to it. So now, what a better what, what's a better time than Christmas to do ghost stories? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And uh, I, I want to say, uh, for the benefit of your audience who doesn't know the backstory, how awesome Jason and Ty are because this is our third attempt at uh, recording this episode, and I'm almost an hour late hopping onto it. So. <laughs> the uh the first night i uh, couldn't get my microphone to work then i caught a horrible cold and lost my voice and then tonight i was stupidly like uh i'm gonna go out for some last minute christmas shopping and got caught in horrible los angeles traffic which should have been predictable but uh alas i don't learn from my mistakes <laughs> yeah i mean los angeles there's never any traffic there man never <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My uh, my favorite depiction of Los Angeles traffic. There was this Steve Martin movie in the '90s called L.A. Story, and uh, uh, every time he gets on the freeway, like he's talking to the person in the passenger seat while he has a, a gun in his hand, just like randomly shooting out the window. <laughs> traffic is getting bad everywhere. I live in a, a relatively small town. Um, I say relatively, like relative to Knoxville, which is like quote unquote the big city here. Um, and I just think that the populate the infrastructure isn't built for the amount of uh, population growth that the town has seen in like the last decade. And so they're, I, I think the, they have a lot of like civil engineers coming in and like trying to redo um, a lot of the roadways, but like it's so bad. And then I think too, people in East Tennessee aren't used to that kind of traffic to begin with. So like if you go to Knoxville and get like on I 40, it's literally four lanes. Like it's huge for, for the amount of population that we have here in Knoxville, but it moves at a crawl for no reason, because I don't feel like people know how to drive in that kind of traffic versus like, if you go three hours South to Atlanta, the roads are the same width, but everybody's going 70 miles or 70 miles an hour. And their population is way more dense than, than the Knoxville population. So, um, but yeah, Mar- Maryville is, it, it's definitely the infrastructure is not caught up to the amount of people that have moved here over the last like decade. Um, and so just for my wife to get across town to go to work, which should be like a 10 minute commute takes like, almost 30 minutes in the morning, which is absolutely insane. Oh man. When, when I first moved out here, I was living in North Hollywood and I was working at a uh, gold gym in uh, Manhattan beach. And on the map, that's like 27 miles. And so I was like, Oh, that won't be a bad commute. It was 90 minutes each way every day. (laughs) Oh my gosh, dude. 90 minutes. I'm well, and me and my wife, when we bought our house, we bought our house about two years ago. I, I think it'll be two years, a little over two years now. It's like a two years and a week, I think, right now. So, um, but we used to live um, in West Knoxville in the Farragut area, and it would take me, I don't know, like seven minutes to get to work. And now that I'm, you know, 
we're in Maryville, it takes probably, I don't know. It, it depends on when I leave. Like if I leave after like seven 15 ish, the worst part of the commute is getting to Pellissippi. And then from there it's a breeze, but like, um, it usually takes me like 35 minutes. That's kind of like the limit for me. Um, my wife for a little while worked in a uh, tanger in pigeon forge when she was still living with her parents in greenback. And that was like the same kind of like hour and a half community. Like, I don't know how people do that. Yeah. It's insane. I don't get well, it. they, they listen to things like AFK discussions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> bada bing, bada boom, little plug. <laughs> See, I know how to work it. I know. How to work it. <laughs> we love it, dude. We love it. Hey, also Brad, I don't know if you saw the news, but, uh, Right now, we're bracing for a, gosh, I want to say snowmageddon, but we may not get snow. It's just super cold here. No, it's supposed um, to be a lot of snow, actually. Is there supposed to be snow? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. yeah were so you with us, know. Jason, when we all got snowed into the House of Ill Repute on the hill? And we had to walk down to the grocery store and like we're dragging uh, carts full of groceries back up the hill with us and leaving them in the snow because we didn't have any power. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> i've forgotten a lot <laughs> yeah i just remember i don't remember who all was with us i just remember jc uh complaining about dragging the the uh the shopping carts up the hill just being like oh man do we have to do, can we just leave the milk here and come back later for it <laughs> you do good jc <laughs> <laughs> what's funny is he doesn't actually sound anything like that but it captures yeah. his personality i think yeah exactly <laughs> so funny no my wife earlier went to the store um to like get she's like oh just in case you know we do lose power or we do get snowed in or whatever the case because it's supposed to be a low of seven tomorrow night high of 24 and then like a low of seven again um they've already salted the roads and stuff um i got got some friends that work for the city apparently they've busted out the salt trucks and the and the snow plows and all that stuff just in case but um, I was like, yeah, go, go to the store. She's like, I'm going to go to the store and pick some stuff up just in case we lose power or whatever. And she gets, she doesn't get any non-perishables. Like it's all stuff that goes in the fridge. It's all stuff you have to cook with like the stove or an air fryer. Like we have like three or four steaks and some chicken. So and the grill runs on propane. So we'll be able to cook that. But I was like, dude, what did you even go to the store for? It's like, <laughs> it's like Oreos and like stuff that goes in the freezer, dude. I'm like, what is this? <laughs> yeah, um, if you're not from Tennessee, specifically East Tennessee, if it snows like an inch, everything shuts down. It's crazy. Yeah, nobody knows what to do with it. <laughs> I, I all right, man. All the, uh, all the blizzards that we always had, like the blizzard of 93. And dude, that was a legit blizzard, though, the dude. The blizzard of 90, was it 93 or was it 91? Was it 93 or was it 91? It was 93, dude. It was yeah. like, we got I heard like that was three feet. Cracked. Three feet of snow, I think it was, yeah. or maybe even more. Yeah, I, rem- I remember, uh, you know, we lost we lost power. You know, I was just a kid, so I, I, I don't remember everything that went on. But I remember we ate canned chili like four days in a row that we'd make in the fireplace. Jeez, dude, that sounds awful, man. Oh, my God. <laughs> Jeez, dude. No, I don't reason, think. The phone worked, though. I remember that because I, uh, I remember, like, during the day, I'd sit at the kitchen table with a blanket around me and like call my friends and it's like, how's the phone working? But nobody has any power. <laughs> well, that's funny because it's like 90% of like the old phone lines, especially like AT&T there. They still have the boxes. Like there's a box in my flower bed. Um, 
like it, it's pretty big. It, it, I think it facilitates like different houses in the neighborhood. But like um, my dad used to work for like Bell South and dig ditches and put phone line in. And it was all underground and they all rooted into boxes that were on the ground. And so phones would never, that's why I'd like landlines and stuff would never go out is because all everything's under the ground. So it's, it's exactly like how fiber optic is now. So like my fiber optic internet's like underground and all that stuff. It's, it's exactly the same premise and that's why it would never go out. It's I, so awesome. You know, that makes a lot of sense because there's so many, that's one thing that always strikes me whenever I come back to Knoxville is how, how many above ground power lines there are. Yeah. Um, Cause you don't see that a lot in other places in the country anymore you know so many so many have gone underground and uh so it's always kind of like a just kind of a shock that you know when i get there it's like i don't know like you feel like you're suddenly stepping into a video game or something you're like oh okay there's my map grids <laughs> <laughs> well and that's like every time the wind blows like alcoa's power goes out so <laughs> yeah. um i mean it's pretty it's pretty busted but hopefully hopefully we don't lose power and we stay warm and we got a, we got a fireplace that runs on propane and we got a couple other things. And so I think we'll be okay. If worst come to worst, we'll go to the in-laws house. So yeah, there you go. Well, if you do lose power, you could sit around and tell ghost stories for Christmas. Mm. Yeah. Brings, brings us into our topic see, today. See, see what I did there? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Brad, do you want to go kind of go in the history of, of ghost stories on Christmas? Because before I talk, before I talked to you and Jason about it, I really wasn't too familiar with it. Yeah, so uh, so this is kind of an interesting phenomenon that uh, never really took root in the U.S. Um, it's mainly British, uh, but but the idea is that on Christmas Eve, the veil between the worlds was at its thinnest, and it was the the most likely time to see a spirit. So a um, a Christmas tradition going back centuries was on Christmas Eve you'd gather the family around the fire and you'd tell ghost stories. Um, and this was actually the origin of A Christmas Carol. Uh, you know, Charles Dickens' story about Ebenezer Scrooge. It right. It wasn't just random that these ghosts visit Scrooge at night. It was a Christmas tradition that you would tell ghost stories on Christmas Eve. And so that was Dickens' ghost story that year. Um, the, aside from A Christmas Carol, probably the most famous writer <clears throat> who... Uh, who utilized this tradition was uh, was a man named uh, M. R. James Montague Rhodes James. He was a uh, medieval scholar and a professor at Eton, um, one of the uh, uh, you know thousand year old universities in England. And uh, every Christmas Eve, he would gather all his students around, and they would sip brandy and you know put a fire on and he would tell these ghost stories that he wrote. And uh, there's some of the creepiest, most bizarre ghost stories you've ever read. Um, the uh, uh, a bulk of the best ones are collected in a book called ghost stories of an antiquary by MR James. Okay. Uh, highly recommend. There've been a few, uh, the, the, the BBC, I think um, for a few years, in the 70s, and then again, um, uh, a couple of years back, uh, would do adaptations of them. So if you uh, if you go on YouTube, you can sometimes find some of these. Uh, just type up uh, "Ghost Story for Christmas" or "Ghost Story for Christmas" M.R. James, and uh, the uh, the adaptations are incredibly creepy as well. Um, the 
only only one of them really got uh, adapted as an American film. He uh, one of his ghost stories is called Casting the Runes, and in the fifties or sixties there was this uh, film called Night of the Demon, which is a classic horror film. If anybody hasn't seen it, but uh, but was uh, adapted loosely again by Sam Raimi a few years ago uh, with Drag Me to Hell. Ooh, I like that one. I really, yeah. really like that one. Yeah, Drag Me to Hell's a lot of fun. Uh, way over the top and grosser than the M.R. James story. But uh, uh, highly recommend anybody who's a fan of just incredibly creepy atmospheric ghost stories that have this ring of, of this is something that could have happened um, is, uh, should, should definitely check out M.R. James. Uh, highly recommend. But, uh, but yeah, so that's, that's an old tradition, these ghost stories on Christmas. And uh, one that's that just kind of slipped away here as we became more, we got more and more into, I don't want to say the commercialization of Christmas, although I, I think that played a big part of it, but kind of the, the branding right. of Christmas, this, this idea of an American Christmas, you know, everybody's sitting around singing jingle bells and it's all happy and it's about the kids and et cetera. And we've kind of gotten away from that, that part of the tradition, which obviously being you know, a fan of, uh, ghost stories and writing the kind of things I like. Uh, I, I see that as a shame because, uh, that to me sounds like a lot of fun to sit around on Christmas Eve and tell ghost stories and I can never get anybody else to do it. So I'm really glad that you guys are having me on today. <laughs> yeah, dude. Totally. To, be, to be honest, man, I don't think like if I had a perfect, like one of my college professors were like, Hey, would you like to come sit Brandy and listen to my stories? I'd be like, uh, no, I'm good. I'm going out of town for Christmas. <laughs> Thanks for the invite, though. I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Today that, uh, <coughs> excuse me. Today that might have a uh, kind of a different feel to it. Be like, oh man, creepy Professor James wants us all to come over to his house. That that's actually the start of the story. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, come sit brandy with me. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't let him pour the drink. <laughs> right right <laughs> buy it yourself and bring it bring your own <laughs> <laughs> but yeah also for anyone who's a fan of the genre mr james was a huge influence on hp uh, lovecraft and um and then subsequent authors stephen king i mean you name it anyone who works in the the genre at a high level uh cites the ghost stories of mr james as an influence they're often called weird ghost stories because they they are like it's never his ghosts are never just an apparition of a person or, you know, uh, something in a sheet with rattling chains. They're these, um, you know, things half glimpsed in the dark that are, you know, hairy and slimy and their limbs don't connect the way that they should. And like, they're, they're very disturbing, <laughs> <laughs> especially for someone writing around like 1910, you know? Yeah. But man, there was a lot of like creepy stuff then, like, you mentioned Lovecraft. I mean, his stuff is so bizarre, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, I think where he get, got a lot of his, um, so, so in MR James ghost stories, a lot of times the people who see the, or experience the ghost lose their minds. Yeah. Um, I think that, that made a big impression on Lovecraft. Um, and again, also those, those like tactile senses, like James always describes, Oh, there's one, one story. I think it might be Canon Albert's scrapbook where this guy finds this old medieval tome that, uh, you know, talks about this demon that was summoned, et cetera, et cetera. And he's, you know, sitting at a desk late at night and he's got this one little candle lit and it's just dark all around him. And then he just feels this like cold, hairy 
hand grasp his, you know, um, in the dark. It's just so like freaky, but, but I think, you know, Lovecraft, obviously, you know, everything in Lovecraft is, you know, slimy and dripping with ichor and, you know, whatever other kind of purple prose that Lovecraft liked to shower upon. Everything was eldritch, you know? Yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, but I think, I think that was a big inspiration on him too. It was just this kind of tactile, otherworldly madness that the supernatural brought. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I think that like stuff like that, like I couldn't imagine having like the sensation of waking up in the middle of the night, going to the bathroom and like stepping, like I have a dog. So like, uh, he doesn't use the bathroom in the house though. So like, but like going to the bathroom and like stepping in something weird and then like looking behind you and there's like this just crazy, I don't know. Sometimes it kind of freaks me out. Like I'm a big proponent of like, I don't want to say I'm scared of the dark cause I'm not scared of the dark, but like a good example of this is like, so uh, in my bathroom, when you come out of where the toilet is, it's kind of like in its own room. Um, and there's a double vanity outside of it with a mirror and the mirror like looks back into our closet. And sometimes my wife will hang her robes or her dresses um, in such a way that it looks like there, it's like a person in there almost like when you glance at it, like really, like really quickly. And so it's, it's really easy for me to get creeped out. So it's very interesting that like that is kind of like one of the historic backbones or historic foundations of where a lot of horror writers draw inspiration is something like that, because I think there's something really unique. I think it's a I think I, I don't think it's a me thing. I think it's like a human thing. Right. I think it's a a my, yeah, my naturally kind of it's, fear it's kind of, of the dark. Yeah. My theory would be it's kind of like an evolutionary fear, you know. You know, imagine when we are, you know, we're living on the plains, you know, we haven't started building houses. We're not even wearing clothes yet. Right. Right. You know, we're all huddled around a fire. Um, we're sleeping and you wake up in the night and you have to go pee. And you're like, I'm, I'm going to walk away from everyone. So I don't, you know, I don't pee on Ugg's baby over here. And um, uh, you're because of the nocturnal predators that could pick you off you know say say we're we're on the plains of africa lions you know leopards cheetahs gator or crocodiles in that regard you know whatever it is there's so many things that can kill you um that i think in the dark there's a part of our brain that becomes hyper sensitive to danger that's my theory right and i think when you combine that with imagination um and and little things like have you ever heard of pareidolia no, I don't, I don't know. I don't okay, think so, so. Uh, the human brain is hardwired to see patterns, specifically to see hu- a human face. Um, and again, you know, this is an evolutionary thing. If you're, you know, in, in the, the tall grass and you have to know where your hunting buddies are or, you know, there's a, a warring tribe or whatever, you want to be able to easily pick out their face amongst the pattern of the, the grass and the trees and whatnot. Sure. So, so we evolved that way, but they call it pareidolia. But what ends up happening is pareidolia is also why we can look at clouds and see a rabbit or why you can look at a dusty window. And because of the way that the dust is laid out and maybe stains on the window, it might look like somebody is standing in the room, staring back at you. 
Um, so crazy. That's yeah, so, so creepy. So you combine those two things, this kind of hyper right. uh, danger sense that we have in the dark with our ability to pick out patterns, specifically human patterns, and even more specifically human faces. And it's so easy to see how we creep ourselves out in the dark constantly. You know, like you said, the, like a, uh, you know, a, a dress hanging somewhere. Right. You'll see it and your brain doesn't go, oh, that's a dress. Your brain goes, a person standing there. <laughs> right, right. I remember I used to work uh, years and years ago when we lived in North Hollywood. I, I worked a uh, graveyard shift at Technicolor. And I came home at like two in the morning or something for lunch, you know. And I walk in and to our, uh, our couch in our apartment there, uh, the back of the couch, the way it was set up to kind of like delineate the living room, the back of the couch was toward the, the front door. Yeah. And so I walk in, it's pitch black, little bit of like moonlight shining through the window. And I see like, like there is a man sitting on the couch. I see the back of his head. Oh my God. And you know, my, and like, I just seize up. I'm like, what the hell? A guy is sitting in the dark in my living room. Like he's waiting for me. And so I reach over and I grab something off my desk. I can use as a weapon. I don't even remember what. And I creep over. You know, because my thought is like, nobody should be here. So my wife's in bed. Like, whoever this is, I'm going to club them. And as I creep over, it's just my cat sitting on the back of the couch. Oh, and my, my brain God. immediately read it. I mean, it was the outline, like a dude's shoulders, his neck, and the back of his head. That's how my yeah. brain interpreted that. Probably because, again, like pareidolia and heightened danger sense at night, you know. Um, But, like with my imagination, I have that crap happen to me all the time. Like there is nothing that creeps me out half as much as I creep myself out. <laughs> right. Well, and it happens like, I feel like it happens like so fast. Oh yeah. And you descend, you descend into fear like very, very quickly. Yeah. Very yeah. Quickly. You know, people talk about, um, talk about, uh, you know, um, how we should be able to rationalize this and that. But like you said, it happens so quickly. Your brain doesn't have time to put the pieces together and question what's happening. Right. Your brain just goes, danger. There's a guy. <laughs> and you're like, oh, my God. And you throw a shoe and you break your window. And you're like, that wasn't a guy. That was a bush. Uh, I should have known that bush has been there for 20 years. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. I did tonight of all nights. It looked like Deadpool. <laughs> <laughs> oh man so yeah but that that's really interesting that that's like uh sort of the foundation for like a lot of this stuff so no but i'm I'm pretty excited to to hear some stories man yeah yeah well um i guess i'll start off with uh with a couple of uh experiences i've had uh, awesome the uh the first one uh this was 2008 I was in Naples, Italy. Uh, my wife and I had uh, uh, gone to Italy uh, for our anniversary that year. And um, we, we'd we start off in Rome, uh, one of my favorite places on earth. Anyone who's read my work, Rome pops up repeatedly. <laughs> um, if you haven't read my work, rush out and buy some now. You'll enjoy it. Trust me. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, uh, we made our way down to Naples. Uh, Naples is a fantastic city. It's, it's just chaotic, bursting with life. Like I've never seen, like I talked about bad traffic earlier. People drive at each other in Naples and yet somehow still manage to get around. Um, 
and uh, and just got all these like narrow cobblestone streets from where where the city was uh, originally an ancient Greek settlement, Neapolis. And uh, there's just so much history there. And we were staying in this bed and breakfast that was in an old 15th century tower. It was one of these places with a giant door to get into the tower, but then like a normal sized door cut into that door. Yeah. And so, and you walk in and um, the tower's open air. So the, you know, sunlight's coming down and there's like clotheslines strung everywhere inside. And um, I remember when we first walked in, there was like an old woman, like throwing a bucket of suds off her balcony. And I was like, Oh geez, where are we staying? And we go up to the top and go into this uh, bed and breakfast and it was just gorgeous. They'd completely renovated the top floor of this tower and it was just amazing. And so we'd been there a couple of days and we had gone to visit Pompeii and we'd spent the day okay. around the ruins of Pompeii and, um, and we come back to the bed and breakfast and uh, we're the only ones there. And so we pour some wine and we go and we set out <clears throat> on the, um, uh, on the balcony and we're watching the sunset behind Vesuvius, you know, very, picturesque and romantic and my wife's got her back to the um to these two open double doors that open into the living room and uh and we're talking about something and um a uh, a man walks through the living room behind her and uh he's wearing like this kind of like white flowy linen shirt and white linen pants is what it looks like and he walks by and he goes behind a wall and I'm thinking, oh, I wonder, I wonder who else uh, came home because we'd met some of the other people staying at the bed and breakfast. Yeah. And uh, the only place he could have gone when he walked behind the wall was into the kitchen, which also had a door that opened onto the balcony. So I turned and I look in the kitchen to see who walks in there, and no one steps into the kitchen. So I get up and I walk into the living room to peek and see who's there. But when I walk in, the lights come on. They were on a motion sensor. They didn't come on when this guy walked through the room. Oh, oh yeah, yes. dude. And the word ghost didn't enter my head for 10 minutes because that's not what I saw. I saw a man, a man right. walk through this room, somehow did not trip the motion censored lights, and then vanished into thin air. And my wife's really funny telling the story because she just talks about how like confused I am standing there being like, uh, what? Huh? <laughs> um <laughs> But like I said, it was like 10 minutes before the word ghost even entered my head. And it only entered my head because I was like, that's the only explanation that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've tried to rationalize that afterwards. Like, what else could be going on? Was I hallucinating? Well, I haven't hallucinated before or since, to the best of my knowledge. Um, you know, uh, could someone have come home and somehow vanished without me seeing them again how even if they could like how did they not trip the motion sensor lights um like i know i know i saw something because it wasn't even a quick it wasn't even like a i saw someone out of the corner of my eyes i watched this person walk all the way across the living room yeah it's, it wasn't like a peripheral yeah. like quick quick little glance kind of deal yeah yeah and so that's that's the only explanation that I have for it. Now, does that mean it's a, it was a spirit or, or, or an environmental recording or I don't know all that stuff's over my head. It's beyond my pay grade, but I saw something. Yeah. I'm certain of that. There was something there. That's so crazy. Yeah, man. I, I mean, that's, it's so weird. Um, sorry. 
<laughs> I was just thinking because you said environmental. What what exact word you used? Environmental, environmental recording. recording. Yeah, yeah, that's that's something that I think about too because you know you hear all these um, things like places have memories and they play back sometimes like yeah. in a loop. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a common type of uh, uh, ghost sighting that you hear about. Is like the um, you know the cliche is the uh, the woman who reenacts her murder, you know, every night or something like that, right? Yeah. Um, there's a there's a thing called the stone tape theory. Uh, it's actually the name is um, it's based on a made for TV British movie from the seventies called the Stone Tape. But the idea is that for whatever reason the environment can somehow uh, sometimes record things that occur there. Um, and as part of the theory goes, uh, you know, you get a lot of, a lot of supposedly haunted places will have say like limestone deposits, right. In the soil yeah. or, you know, they're, they're these weird common denominators. <coughs> um, I've always considered, you know, on these ghost hunting shows and stuff, they always break out their EMF meter, you know. Oh, there's electromagnetic frequencies. Um, and, you know, there's a, a lot of, like, pseudoscience in that. You can go into that and rip that apart and debunk it, but to a certain extent. But um, the thing I find interesting about that, this, this at least, like, correlation between uh, hauntings and electromagnetism is um, the way that physical recording mediums worked. You know, I'm talking, like, audio cassettes video cassettes um is with magnetic tape mm -hmm. so you yeah. would use that same principle of magnetism to record images and sound and so what i find interesting about that theory about the stone tape theory is is there theoretically it, it seems that there it would be possible for there to be conditions where the environment could somehow magnetically record sounds images both that occur there and then under certain conditions playback could get triggered yeah um that is that is so crazy yeah yeah and that's that's a really good explanation i have not heard it explained like that before that was that was awesome yeah it's um you know i th I, th I think about it a lot because i'm i'm a really rational guy and i hate pseudoscience and i i often describe myself as an asshole in the fact that like i disbelieve 99% of ghost stories i hear but I believe in ghosts <laughs> um, yeah. because I think it's, you know, like we were talking about earlier, whether it's pareidolia, whether it's our imagination, there's a hundred reasons why we can convince ourselves that we thought saw something or experienced something. Um, and I don't think a lot of people are, a lot of people want to believe so badly too, that they don't want to kind of question that and, and tear apart their own experience. However, the thing that I find interesting about ghost stories as opposed to other phenomenon is that they're consistent across every culture from the dawn of time. You know, um, leprechauns are purely Irish. You're only going to find them in, in, in and around Ireland. Uh, the Penangolin is, is unique to Southeast Asia. You know, the Southeast Asian vampiric kind of creature. You know, every culture has their own, like, unique myths and legends. But all of them have ghost stories. And for the most part, the ghost stories are incredibly similar. Um, and I think one of the things that, that always jumps out to me when people try to debunk um, 
the entire concept of ghosts is first off they rely on they rely on the fact that people are either lying or mistaken which like i said i think could account for a very high percentage probably of ghost stories but not all of them there are ghost stories that have uh where phantoms have been witnessed by multiple people at once and sometimes reputable people there was a famous one in chicago in the 20s where uh, i think it was a tour group of like 20 or 30 people saw an apparition all of them saw it Hmm. you know um and you've you've got stories like that constantly um you know all the all the heads of state that have seen ghosts in the white house um there's a rabbit hole for you a really interesting one is you know go go look up like like uh i think i think it was winston churchill who granted drank a lot but <laughs> i think it was winston <laughs> winston churchill who was the most famous person who saw lincoln's ghost um in the white house and so i i think you know there are phenomenon that can explain it. Um, there's a lot of interesting research done into infrasound. Have you guys ever heard of mm-hmm. infrasound? Yes. Yeah. I know. Um, there's a big theory about infrasound in like, you know, cryptids such as Bigfoot and stuff that they produce. That's why you get so, so scared and stuff, but also, you know, alligators, crocodiles also emit infrasound. Yeah. There's, yeah. And there's a lot of things in the environment, um, you know, subway, uh, trains like all sorts of things that can create infrasound and, and for listeners who aren't as familiar the idea is that uh, infrasound is a very low frequency sound wave that isn't consciously audible by the human ear but affects the brain and can create feelings of paranoia feelings that you're being watched feelings of terror and possibly cause hallucinations and so a lot of people point to in- infrasound as a cause for some hauntings um the the problem I always have with these types of debunkings is first off they you know even if you take out people who are lying and mistaken and blah 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 all that um, they assume that one answer can account for every ghost story and I don't think that's the case I think I think there probably are a lot of ghost stories that are people who have experienced infrasound for instance I think there are a lot of ghost stories that can be the result of pareidolia. For instance, however, I don't think there's any one answer that accounts for all of them. And I think even the concept of of a haunting or a ghost story itself, if if they're real, if ghosts are real, I don't think every experience is the same kind of thing either. You know, I think that it's possible that the stone tape theory could be real, that the environment can play back recordings, and yet that doesn't explain ghost stories where the ghost has appeared to interact with people. Yeah. Right. You know, so could those be two separate phenomena? Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of interesting questions that get into there. That's that's where, you know, that's where I say, like, I kind of consider myself a, a skeptical asshole because I believe in ghosts. <laughs> I just don't believe in most ghost stories. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of feel the same way. And for me personally, it's I think the more advanced technology gets in the perception of reality, especially when you're talking about like virtual reality like virtual reality right now isn't even that good and it still is good enough to trick your mind right so like i think the the perception of things and the way technology is advanced it's really really hard to sell me on something that i don't see in person yeah like it, it doesn't matter like if there was an expert this footage hasn't been tampered with and i'm like man i i 
the advancements of technology, there might be somebody using like deep fakes is a thing. Like there could be somebody using something that you personally don't recognize as like, Oh, something has been altered or something's been messed with. Um, but well, I definitely think yeah, that, that technology is, is a huge part. Yeah. I think technology, but you hit on a big thing too, like personal experience. I, I, I think that's a very interesting thing. I, I equate ghost uh, experiences a lot to a run of the mill headache. Um, you know, serious conditions aside, I'm not talking a brain tumor. I'm not talking, I had a concussion earlier in the year. You know, I'm not talking stuff like that. I'm talking about just your normal, like, headache. Like, I got up today and I got a headache. Maybe I didn't drink enough water. Maybe I slept too long, whatever. That sure. normal kind of run-of-the-mill headache, there is no test that can prove that you have a headache. Um, nobody else can experience your headache. <laughs> The only thing that we have to go on is the fact that you say you have a headache and we take people at their word for that and we sell them Tylenol. Um, and, you know, I kind of equate uh, ghost experiences to that. You know, there's no test we have that can prove it. All these, all the ghost hunting pseudoscience aside, there's nothing that can prove a haunting is occurring or not occurring. You know, there's nothing that can prove that someone had an experience or didn't. We can only go on their word you know, unless we ourselves also experience it, um, at least as technology currently stands. You know, uh, radio waves have existed since the dawn of time. You know, I, I, I think and my science could be iffy here, but uh, if I remember correctly, I think radio waves resulted from the Big Bang. Um, but it wasn't until Marconi invented a machine that allowed us to listen to and transmit them that we could experience radio waves. You know, yeah. Um, I don't know. There's just a lot of a lot of interesting stuff to to think about there. I'm that's a really unique way to look at it, though. Very unique and very relatable way. I feel like um, to to look at it. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. Like, there's so much so much throughout history that we've labeled as supernatural phenomenon, simply because we didn't have the scientific answers for it yet. You know, um, I mean, God, you know, you go back to. Uh, you know, primitive cultures who, um, you know, thought that the the sun was a chariot being pulled across the sky, you know, um, yeah. we didn't know, we didn't have the technology yet. There, there weren't telescopes yet to look up and go, oh, no, it's a giant ball of gas in the sky. Why am I staring at it through a telescope? Ah, I'm blind. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, so I find all that really interesting because theoretically, Anything that we dub supernatural right now, any haunting phenomenon or whatever, could have a natural explanation that we just have not discovered yet. And um, and it's kind of one of the the shames the the that all the like pseudoscience of ghost hunting and whatnot has done is I feel like it's put a lot of stigma on the field, and so there aren't a lot of legitimate scientists getting into it anymore. You know, it used to be that universities had um, um, parapsychology. Uh, departments you know uh, duke university was very famous for theirs and that's kind of been replaced by you know plumbers on tv with you know gadgets they bought on amazon uh yeah. you know, going out and ghost hunting or my favorite these uh have you guys seen these spirit boxes yeah they just, yeah they just play like radio static yeah they search where the theory is that you know searches radio waves to try to pick out words yeah but, yeah which seems like incredibly complicated for a ghost to be doing. I don't know. Yeah. Um, or uh, I, I, I saw an episode of one of these things once 
and there was some box where they could like the box had like i don't know three thousand words programmed in or whatever and um would just like randomly fire off a word and the guys were like oh it's speaking to us and so the box was like birthday and the guys were like oh it's the person's birthday they died on their birthday oh we gotta find out <laughs> whose birthday was today what's today's date and it's just like man, i love it dude <laughs> That's what causes me to be a skeptic and things like this. Yeah, that yeah. it it's the people that try to take the entertainment angle. Yeah. Instead of the <coughs> I I I want to use this very lightly, the quote unquote scientific angle. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's what causes me to be a huge skeptic and gives me sort of the same outlook that you have on it, right? Well, because scientifically, if you were gonna go into a real scientific investigation of a haunted place right ghosts have not been proven to exist so that's your first theory that's the first thing you have to deal with are ghosts real or not and Mm -hmm. there are ways that you could try to get data on that you could record video you could record audio etc but until you prove that ghosts are real you can't say oh ghosts can use radio waves to scan the channels and pick out words to communicate with us. You yeah. can't say, um, oh, ghosts give off electromagnetic frequency because there's no proof, scientific proof, that ghosts are real. So right. you're, you're going down a rabbit hole where you're making, you know, inane theories on top of inane theories with no substance at any point. Once you prove ghosts are real, then you could say, okay, well, now let's test this next theory. Or... You know, the EMF thing, the electromagnetic frequency, for instance, if you wanted to find a correlation between electromagnetic frequency and reports of hauntings, you could do that. You know, oh, we've studied, you know, 50 houses that are supposed to be haunted, and out of the 50, 47 of them have uh, abnormally high electromagnetic frequency. Okay, well, now we know there's, there's some correlation, strong correlation at least, between electromagnetic frequency and reports of haunting. But you still haven't right. proven that ghosts are real. So you yeah. can't say that ghosts give off electromagnetic frequency because it could be just as likely that electromagnetic frequency is causing people to hallucinate, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's true. So one interesting thing I saw recently was, you know how the Teslas have all the sensors that detect people? So there's this guy who was, um, it was I think it was a TikTok video. He uh, was in a, he drove his Tesla into like a cemetery. I don't know what he was I guess he was visiting some something. He's like, oh, I'm going to alert that there's a person in front of my car. And you see the little stick outline of, uh, you know, the sensor picking up on the movement of a person walking in front of the car. And, but there's no one in front of the car. Oh, that's And then, and then it picks up other people like in the cemetery that aren't there either. That, that is kind of, uh, next level, you know? Yeah. That's that's very creepy. (laughs) See, those are the kinds of things, though. Like, what's the what's the technology that a Tesla uses to determine if someone is there or not? Could you take that technology and try to use that to prove the existence of ghosts? Theoretically, yeah. maybe you could. Maybe you could, but nobody's done that, you know? Yeah. Like, that would require legitimate scientists performing legitimate experiments, you know, um, and trying to go into it with as little bias as possible. Yeah, definitely. Um, which is, again, all, you know, always the problem with the ghost hunting shows is they assume that ghosts exist. Not only do they assume ghosts exist, they assume they're really common. You know, um, like you said, Ty, it, it boils down to entertainment. I remember when Ghost Hunters first aired, 
watching the first season and um, kind of digging it because like a lot of the places they went to in that first season weren't haunted. They would find other reasons for it. You know, they'd right. be like, oh, you know, this is going on with your pipes and blah, blah, blah. And that's what's causing this noise. And it's like, oh, interesting. But of course, that didn't do much for ratings. So come the second season, every place they go to is haunted. And not only is it haunted, they're catching video of ghosts. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, so. <coughs> I'm Check a sucker for this recording. Don't you hear it? And it's <laughs> like, I don't hear the same thing you hear. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's one of my favorite things is uh, when you get into the 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 white noise uh voice record what do they call them um evps electronic e- EVPs. voice phenomenon yeah, yeah. is that 90 percent of the ones that they show on television will just be this and then they're like play it again but they put the subtitle under it of help me and yeah. because you're reading it say help me now it sounds like help me Right, yeah. Right, right. Now we had a guy on. He does um, like exploration of like abandoned buildings and stuff. His name's Phil. Shout out to Exploring with Phil. He's an awesome guy. Um, and he does like the ghost hunting stuff. And he had some EVPs. And dude, some of these were like really, really legit. I was very surprised. Um, and you know, we played them on the podcast. That so there's not that, you know. I guess subtitling of what it says. Yeah. But I mean, like you could legit hear the stuff that, you know, they were saying it was, it was, it was, legit. I've heard, I've yeah. heard some creepy ones, you know, well, that... and too, uh, I'm sorry, but like the, th- the thing about Phil's recording too, is he's not saying, okay, in this recording, they're saying this, he, go, it, he just goes, Hey, and check this one out. Yeah. yeah. And then you go, Oh, that <laughs> sounded like this. And he goes exactly what I thought. Right. So I think that it's important to play something like that for someone, let them develop their own interpretation of what they've heard or saw, and then let them tell you and then you guys discuss it. Yeah. Right. Versus you trying to uh, sort of push what you think it is on the. Well, you know, and that's one of my favorite like subgenres of uh, YouTube ghost videos are the urban explorers, because that's not what they're setting out to do originally they're not like oh i'm gonna go find a ghost they're just like oh i want to explore this old abandoned hospital and then they catch something and they didn't expect yeah. to <laughs> right. yeah totally right. those are the ones i dig i'm like okay okay I'll, I'll, there's some validity there you you saw something maybe it was a homeless guy i don't know but it's something <laughs> right um yeah you know the audio thing's interesting too because the uh, the house i grew up in and jason will tell you that place was creepy um, <laughs> um <clears throat> we had all sorts of you know, all sorts of weird little like things that had happened there, but I would be at home by myself sometimes. And, um, uh, in middle school, I moved into, there was basically like an apartment downstairs and, uh, I moved into it all thinking I was going to, you know, it's like, Oh man, I'm, I'm adult now. Woo. You know, with my freaking, for some reason had a water bed. I don't know who gives a, <laughs> who gives a 12 year old a water bed, but I had a water bed too. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> man. It's like we were living in the seventies or something. I know. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. So anyway, I'd be at home by myself and I would hear my grandmother yell for me. Cause you know, it was the South. Like nobody ever walked downstairs to talk to each other. I would just hear Bradley and I'd yell up what <laughs> And she wouldn't answer. And I go stomping up the stairs only to realize I was the only person at home. And that happened a lot. <laughs> 
yeah, I remember being there and um, when no one else was there and hearing people walk upstairs. Yeah. Numerous times. It, it was so creepy. Oh, it was so creepy. You'd hear footsteps, doors open and close. Um, yeah. It was a... Uh... It was it was a weird place. There was um I remember I was probably like ten years old. And uh again, I'm I'm the only one at home. Uh because this was the nineties when uh parents would just leave their kids. <laughs> and uh but uh I'm like watching TV or something, and I get this weird feeling. You know, you know how like the air pressure changes when somebody walks into the room? Yeah. So I get that feeling. And I look over to the other end of the couch, and I swear, now granted, I was a kid, but but this is how I remember it. The cushion indented like somebody sat down on the couch. And it was night, and I got up, and I bolted outside, and I sat on the curb at the street until my parents got home from the store or wherever they were at. My grandparents, I lived with. Um, and uh, But there was, there was all sorts of stuff like that. Do you remember the story, Jason? Uh, it, was, it was, again, another snowstorm. It was just me and Keith, our friend Keith Harris, and uh, uh, he was one of my roommates at the time, and we're in the living room. Again, big snowstorm, power was out. I think we might have been cooking chili in the fireplace then, too. <laughs> um, we're the only ones at home, and the we hear the kitchen cabinet open, and someone move plates around and shut the cabinet. And Keith and I just looked at each other because we both heard it. And there was nobody else in that house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dude, that, that same thing happened to Keith and I also. Um, no one was home. You weren't there. We came to, I don't know. I don't know what we're doing. We came, just stopped by the house for a few minutes. And um, we heard, like, just not rustling around in the kitchen, but, like, the cabinets would open and slam shut. And it was creepy as all get out, dude. Yeah. Was, well, there was this... There was this chick I dated when I was a teenager who used to like sneak over and spend the night. And um uh we had to start, you know, again I, I slept in this like downstairs apartment thing. And uh she wouldn't sleep with the door open because she said on two different occasions she woke up in the middle of the night and she saw somebody standing in the doorway watching us. Oh my god, don't say that, dude. Oh and I used god. to think I used to think that I heard uh footsteps shuffling in the carpet outside my bedroom door when I would be asleep at night. Um, And it's, I don't know. It was a weird house. Like I said, some of that stuff could maybe be chalked up to overactive imagination, but, but there, there was just too much of it. And Jason experienced some of it. Yeah. Keith experienced some of it. And like, Hey, don't you remember when Mike Gentry moved in and he lived there with you guys for like, I think a week and then he like moved out. Oh yeah. Like something freaked him out. Yeah. Something. I forget what happened to him. Like he experienced something and was like, "I, I can't live here anymore. Um, yeah, yeah, it was a weird place. I, I, I always wonder what it, like, if there was something there, what it was, because my grandmother used to tell me this story. So my, uh, my mother died when I was about a month old from complications from my birth. And, um, my grandmother used to tell me this story that when I was, when I was like four years old, so I don't remember it. I just remember her telling the story. She was uh, cleaning the main bathroom in the house, and I come in, and I have to pee. And she's like, go use the bathroom in my bedroom. She had this little half bath in her bedroom. And so she said, I go in there, and when I came back out, 
I said, I don't ever want to use that bathroom again. And she said, why? And I said, there was a woman in there, and she told me she loved me. And my grandmother said she ran into the bathroom, and of course there was nobody there, but it smelled like flowers. Um, yeah. I always thought that was a that was a strange story. So that kind of made me wonder, you know, if there was something there, was it my mother? I don't know. Which also makes it creepy, because like I said, this girl who would come over to spend the night would see her in the doorway. So I was like, oh, if it was my mother, was she watching me have sex as a teenager? <laughs> oh, oh, my gosh. God. That's yeah. a good dark story. That's a horror story. That's a horror story. <laughs> no, um, I'm a big proponent of, like, sleeping with the door closed. Oh, yeah. I cannot um, sleep so with the door open anymore. The, the door, all the doors are closed to the bathroom and to the hallway. Um, but two, two reasons. First reason being um because of if i wake up in the middle of the night and i see someone standing there i don't care if it's my mind playing tricks or or something like that i'm gonna end up putting like a a hole in a wall or something right (laughs) yeah (laughs) um that's number one number two is um if you're if there is a, a fire in your house the doors being closed will keep the fire out um and allow you to get out and we you know the upstairs isn't it's it's far enough to where you might break your ankle if you drop out of the window, but at least you'll live kind of, yeah. you know what I mean? So, and we have a dog too. So, uh, goose is a couple of times woken up growling. Right. And and my wife, of course she, she, he sleeps on like her, her side. And, and just for reference, um, my dog goose is a Vishla. So he's like a bird dog, um, similar to like a GSP or a Weimaraner. Um, if you know what that is, Weimaraner, um, but, uh, Vichos are a little bit smaller and they're red in color. So, um, but she'll wake me up. Taquan, Taquan, wake up, wake up. I, I think somebody's in, I think somebody's in our house. And I'm like, wait, what? And so of course I have to get up and explore the house and make sure nobody's in there, but he's only done that like a couple of times, but he's really, really, really good about, um, like waking us up if if something's wrong or if he hears like the neighbors outside like the neighbors next door have parties all the time if he hears voices outside it'll kind of get him worked up a little bit so but he's really really good about like keeping us like alerted to things like that so i feel very safe you know knocking on my knocking on wood on my desk i feel very safe in my house and i don't think in my house is relatively new anyway right like my house is only like 13 years old so uh i don't think that there's any spirits here or anything like that but um yeah i gotta i gotta sleep with the door closed man every door closed yeah that's the way i am if if again just my imagination if nothing else if i see an open doorway i it's all too easy for me to imagine someone actually you know what i imagine at open doorways that creeps me the hell out it's not somebody standing in the doorway it's that i look in the doorway and the doorway's empty and then i look over to the door jam and there's like a little kid peeping around the corner oh my god (laughs) i'm not gonna i'm not gonna be able to sleep (laughs) i told you man my my brain is not a place you want to hang out Uh, hey brad i got another question for you dude about while we're on the subject of your experiences so i remember i I contacted you about the house that was behind walmart oh yeah. Um, yeah so and i wanted some information about that because um um tony merkel from professionals which you were on his show also um he had an episode with a guy who had an experience in that area so i was just wondering oh um, really 
Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, send, send me that episode. I gotta check that yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. So it's um he he says like a werewolf type creature, right? Oh he he weird. saw and heard howling and stuff. So so what 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 did you experience there? Okay, so um so to to set the scene, uh so down down Clinton Highway from the house I grew up in, um there was there was a Walmart. Used to be a uh, twin air drive drive in theater, and then they uh, they tore it down. They put it in the first Walmart in the area, um, and uh, so you know, Powell, Tennessee, the nineties. We all hung out at Walmart all the time because what else are you going to do? You know, because um, AOL was on dial up then. Um, <laughs> but uh, but anyway, so right up the street from that was just this like thick patch of woods, and we're dry. There's this little tiny road that kind of like cut next to the highway that went up the woods. And I forget who I was with when we first drove by and we saw that there was a driveway, an overgrown driveway hidden in these woods. It might've been Gentry, Mike Gentry. Um, But anyway, we all decided to go check it out sometime and see what's back there. And we went back there and there were two abandoned houses one was a newer construction, looked like maybe it had been built in, I don't know, the 50s, 60s, um, completely abandoned. The other one looked like an old house, small house from maybe like the 20s with like a tin roof, and it had collapsed. Um, and so I remember a bunch of us used to go hang out there, again, bored teenagers. You know, we'd convinced ourselves this place was haunted. You know, it was all overgrown and you know, hidden, like it was just basically in the middle of the woods, um, <coughs> completely like empty and abandoned. I think it still had running water though. If I remember, I feel like we tried the faucet once and it, and water came out. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so we used to go up there and just kind of like hang out and tell ghost stories. I think, I don't know, we might've played with like a Ouija board at some point or something, but it was, there were like six or eight of us who would go up there. I think it was, it was like me you, Jason, I know went a couple times. I think Gentry, Charlie, Maggie, um, Devon and Ross, maybe. Um, maybe maybe Laura. I'm trying to remember everybody we hung out with in, in those times, but like, so we'd have like these groups that go. And I remember Maggie said that she swore up and down that she saw a little boy at that collapsed house with the tin roof that she'd, she'd seen a little boy, like, run past that house and just disappear into thin air. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't, when I say she swore up and down, it wasn't a story she was telling us, oh, I came here once and this happened. We were there with her. And she was like, guys, look! <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, uh, but I, I don't remember if anybody else saw the, the little boy or if it was just her. But I, I remember, so we'd go in and we'd hang out in this house. And there was one night, I remember, we, we went to go in. The, uh, the front steps to the the front door had collapsed so we'd always go in through the basement and we walked in the basement and there was uh, a man's clothing hanging and we'd never seen that before and it was like clean fresh clothes um and so somebody was like squatting there sometimes uh but i don't think that person was there while we were there maybe they came back at some point and saw us there and was like shit i really need that shirt but i can't go in um <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, that, that was all my memories of it. Like, I don't remember having a, an exact experience. I feel like we would hear things there 
just like weird noises in the back of the house and stuff. Um, but I don't, I don't remember ever seeing anything or, or having any experience that was concrete. But like I said, others did. Other people that we went there with swore that they, they saw something or would hear something. So I'm definitely going to have to check out that episode of The Confessionals and see what happened over there. Yeah, so um, so I never went to the house because I was too chicken. <laughs> oh, that's right. I thought you'd gone yeah. with this before. But... No, no, I never, I never went. Um, but so I reached out to... There's this, I cannot think of her name, and I probably wouldn't use her real name anyways. Um, we'll call her Samantha. Um, so I reached out to the girl that used to live there, like her family lived there when she was younger. Um, do you know do you know what I'm talking about, Brad? Do you remember? No, I don't um, remember. She was friends with Jeremy DeHart and Charlie. Okay. Um, oh, I yeah, I vaguely remember this now. Yeah. Um, but anyways, I reached out to her. And ask her about the house. Um, and she said that she would always see like this giant figure, like hulking size figure, jet black in the woods, like watching her from her porch. Ooh. Like, she'd be on the porch. Creepy. Um, yeah. And then the, I couldn't, I, it, it obviously wasn't you because you just told the story, but I, I heard someone else say that, you know, each room had a different like feeling. They would go into a room and one would be really hot. And one would be like cold. You know, now that you say that, I do remember that. I, okay. I remember that w- the living room where we'd hang out would be freezing, but if you went into one of the bedrooms, it was burning up. Yeah, that's just crazy. Yeah. And was there like pentagrams or anything on the walls? For some reason, I, I thought I remembered something about that. I think there was graffiti. Yeah. But I don't remember exactly what it was. Okay. It's hard to say because we so wanted that place to be creepy as hell. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, I have a hard time remembering like what it was actually like, as opposed to like how it got built up in our heads. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're talking like twenty years ago now, man. It's been a oh, while. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, my memory's trash. I, I, or... I can't. I, I got in a fight with a friend recently because like we had had a con, we'd had a, a conversation two nights before, and I couldn't even remember exactly what the hell the conversation was. So. <laughs> Like my memory is crap. <laughs> Your childhoods were drastically different than than mine. Like we never sought out creepy houses. I, I don't know. That's yeah. You know that became a uh, that became a thing. Um, like ten years ago uh, on the internet, they called it uh, legend tripping. I guess it still is. But but it's that idea of like like oh okay this house is supposed to be haunted. We're going to go check it out. Oh, there's supposed to be, you know, the Jersey devil out here. We're going to go check it out. Let's go to this cemetery. You know, people say that they hear stuff there. Let's go check it out. Um, and, uh, but yeah, we, we were doing all that before it was cool. You know what I mean? You do that. Yeah, no. we, we, yeah, we were the trendsetters. Uh, yeah. Count me out, dude. <laughs> I remember one night, um, I think you came over to my house. It probably wasn't really late. I think it was like maybe nine o'clock or something. And you're like, Hey, come on, let's go. We're gonna we're gonna all go drive down to um the what Chickamauga Battlefield. There's supposed to be some. Oh yeah, there. <laughs> yeah. I didn't go with you guys, but yeah, I think that was me, me, Tess, Devon, and Ross. And uh, yeah, we went down to the Chickamauga Battlefield. It's supposed to be incredibly haunted. We went out there in the middle of the night, and you know we're wandering around this old battlefield, pitch black, 
and there were these all these stories that they would tell about like there's supposed to be this creature that haunted the woods that was like humanoid with green glowing eyes and um uh like you know would eat the dead from the battle or blah 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 i don't know whatever it was and uh and i remember we solved that mystery because while we were there we uh shined our flashlight over and we saw green glowing eyes in the woods and it was a deer because that's what a deer's eyes look like in the middle of the night when you shine a flashlight over their eyes. <laughs> so <laughs> I do remember that. The one thing that was kind of creepy is that we, uh, again, you know, young and being like, let's, let's go somewhere haunted and play with a Ouija board. Like we're in a damn horror movie. Um, I remember we like whipped out the Ouija board and we're messing with it. We always had like this Ouija board and like it never did anything. Because um, just they, casually, we had it, you yeah. Because they the don't. Time. No big deal. If they did, would Milton Bradley sell them? You know, <laughs> like right. But uh, but anyway, so like we're we're like sitting in the field messing with it, and we started hearing this weird noise that I remember at the time. We were all like, "That sounds like a bolt action rifle." Um, like being being readied to be shot. Now, what's creepy about that is they didn't use bolt-action rifles during the Civil War. So, at the time, we were like, oh, we're hearing Civil War ghosts. In reality, it was probably some crazy redneck out there thinking about whether he should shoot us or not. Oh, my God. <laughs> but, yeah. No, I, I loved doing stuff like that. I mean, you know, when I lived in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, um, me and uh, Jessica Clark and Meredith went to Sloss Furnace one night which is this big old like steel furnace that hasn't ran in God knows how many years. And it's supposed to just be like haunted as hell and like wandered around there for hours. And, uh, and that place is pretty creepy. Um, you get a lot of weird feelings there, but uh, the only thing, the only thing that could be considered weird, we had, we had two things that if you're stretching, you could be like, well, that might've been ghostly activity. Who knows? is uh, I found it weird all night that like we'd be on like a catwalk and say to the left of us would be this like pitch black corridor between machines on the catwalk where it's just pitch black and you couldn't see anything. And the other way there would be like moonlight coming in and be very lit up and like you could see everything. And that the lit up direction, I would get the creepiest feelings from. Like, not the pitch black one, not the one that my brain should have been like, oh, don't go in there. But it was the other way. I was like, I don't want to go that way. Um, and then uh, and then we had a tape recorder we were carrying around with us. And uh, uh, we just put new batteries in, and the batteries immediately died. And then we changed the batteries, and they immediately died again. And, you know, you, you hear that in a lot of supposed ghost stories. You know, is that, like, the batteries in the flashlight or the batteries in the video camera keep dying or whatever. But that was all, you know. We didn't we didn't directly experience anything in that place, but yeah. that, that's a creepy place. I think they still do ghost tours there every now and then. Um, but yeah, I love that shit on my my honeymoon. Um, my uh, my wife and I did the ghost tours in Key West and St. Augustine and then in both places, like wandered around afterwards um, to check out the places. And if you've ever been in St. Augustine. St. Augustine, Florida. So it's the the oldest European settlement in the United States. So it's this, you know, these buildings from the 1500s, you know, really narrow, uh, like, cobblestone streets between them. Um, and the entire place shuts down at, like, 7 p.m. because it's just tourists and families, right? 
So there's nobody there. So when we're wandering around after the ghost tour, we were literally the only people in this, you know, 500-year-old town. Um, hmm. And it was so ridiculously creepy. But I remember there's the uh, the oldest Catholic cemetery in the U.S. there. And they would tell uh, the ghost stories were about, you know, there was some, some kind of like dark entity in there that would hurt people uh, in the cemetery. Mm-hmm. And we walked around all these places that, that we'd been to on the ghost tour during the day. And, uh, and then we drove over there. And when we pulled up, I couldn't even get out of the car because the best way I can describe it is it felt like there were 30 people standing at the fence waiting to beat the shit out of me. <laughs> like, if you've ever been in a situation where you know a fight's about to happen. Yeah. Where, where, you know that feeling that's like in the air? Oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. like it's like this like acidic electric feeling like you know like violence is about to happen i got right. that from the cemetery when i pulled up and after walking around all these other places i was like nope nope i'm not even getting out of the car here <laughs> <laughs> um again my you know could have just been my brain playing tricks on me but but i found that weird and then the uh we did have a weird story in key west though um uh key west is amazing by the way and especially if you're into kind of creepy stuff, like there's all sorts of weird stories. Just little, Robert little, the Doll. Robert the Doll is a yeah, great Key West, is yeah. a great Key West ghost story. Um, my favorite Key West, not really a ghost story. This actually happened, um, and is really disturbing. Is um, the story of Elena Del Hoyos, um, and uh, this doctor. Uh, she was this 20 year old woman, beautiful woman who developed tuberculosis and her 55 year old German doctor fell in love with her. And when she died, he claimed that she would, her spirit would come visit him at night and wanted him to rescue her. And so this was in the 1930s. He went and he dug her up and um, used mortician's wax to rebuild her and velvet to rebuild other parts of her and lived with her as his wife for seven years before oh people discovered God. this. Jesus. Yeah. Dude, that's gross. Oh, it's yeah, incredibly disturbing story. Um which of course I've always found fascinating. <laughs> yeah. But um, um anyway, so the, what happened to us is like so we're on this ghost tour and um we uh there's this this shop where they have they have this door that's like this big oak door. It's like 600 years old. It's from some castle in England. The castle was supposed to be haunted. The door is supposed to shake. People at the shop claim to hear it knocking and it opened. And it's like this heavy, heavy door. You know, it's this giant oak door. It like weighs hundreds of pounds. So like the idea of somebody even being able to shake it is ridiculous. But they would tell these stories, right? So anyway, we've been walking around, you know, on the ghost tour. And... uh and everything was fine. And then we get to that one. The guy's telling the story. And my wife starts feeling really hot and like nauseated. And she needs to sit down. And, and I'm like, are you okay? And she's like, I just need to sit here for a minute. And I'm, I'm wondering if it's like the heat stroke or maybe she ate something. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm like, well, let's, let's see if it passes. And if it doesn't, you know, because we'd, we'd had, we had a way we had to walk to get back to the hotel. I was like, you know, we'll head back to the hotel if it doesn't. And um, uh, so the uh, the guy finishes telling the story there and they move on to the next building and we move on and it goes away. You know, as soon as she she gets out from in front of the shop, it goes away. And uh, so when the tour is over, um, 
people are just standing around talking to the tour guide and I ask him, I'm like, uh, I'm like, is anybody, uh, anybody on the tours ever like feel anything when they're, uh, you know, near one of these, these hauntings, not explicitly mentioning what my wife went through that might've been on my mind, but I was just like, you know, it was just a question. And, uh, the guy's like, oh yeah, you remember that shop with the big oak door? It's like, we constantly get people feeling like hot and like, they're going to faint as though they're, they're like, uh, inhaling smoke. You know, it makes them sick to their stomach. And he, like, goes on to describe everything she experienced while she was standing there. Um, and I thought that was weird. <laughs> yeah, that is. That's that's weird. Yeah. I, I don't know why, but, like, every time, and me and Jason were talking about James Gunn earlier. But uh, back to your your experience that you had in front of the graveyard. Every time I envision spirits, I don't know why, but I always envision the spirits from the movie Thirteen Ghosts. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's uh, that's what always every time that's what comes to mind. Ever like the big guy with the spikes in his head and and the the lady <laughs> with the with the cage around her face and uh, I always imagine the, like dark shadows with pale faces with like sunken eyes. Um, Oof. like, like, have you ever again, like, talk about like violence about to occur? Have you ever gotten in a fight with like somebody drugged out of their mind? Um, and that like look they have in their eye, where it's like it's not just violence; it's like something in their brain is broken, and right. it's, it's like, oh my god, this guy wants to eat my face. Um, like that's the look I imagine in their eyes. Because again, I have this like great imagination. Um, that you know keeps me up at night. <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine sheets with eye holes cut out <laughs> <laughs> yeah yours is the best uh you know where that comes from here's some trivia no. for you um there was a uh roman author ancient roman author might have been pliny the elder or pliny the younger that's one a, of the one of the that's plinies. an awesome name <laughs> yeah one of the plinies um anyway so he told this story there was this guy i think on the palatine you know where all the rich people in rome lived who'd bought this old estate and he started seeing an apparition every night of a man in sh- in a sheet covered in chains. So this is where oh, both man. the sheet and the rattling chains with ghosts come from, as this dates all the way back to the ancient Romans. Huh. But this guy saw this figure every night, and it scared the shit out of him. And, like, night after night, this would happen. And finally, one night, he's like, I'm going to follow this thing through my house. And um, he started following it. And every night, it went to the same spot in, in his garden and then disappeared. And after a couple of nights of this, he decided to go out there and dig up his garden. And somebody had been murdered at some point in the the house's history. Somebody had been murdered, wrapped in a sheet. Chains had been tied around the sheet to hold hold the you know the sheet on the body, I guess. And they'd mm-hmm. been buried in the backyard. Dang, that's crazy. Jesus. Yeah, and uh, but yeah, that's a, that's a two thousand year old ghost story. But that's where the rattling chains and that's where the sheet come from with ghosts. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So to go back to your previous thought, I have never fought anybody with who's like dr- drugged out of their mind. But um, I used to be a police officer and uh, I won't use any names or locations. Um, but I got a call one time um, that this lady had lost control of her son. Um, her son was EDP, emotionally disturbed person. Um, and they were calling us out there because she didn't know what to do. Right. And basically, our, our protocol is to go out, we take them to the hospital. 90% of the time since um, Lake Shores closed down, they refer patients to Moxon's Bin uh, in Chattanooga. Um, but anyways, that's not here nor there. So I go to this house and 
the lady comes outside. She's an older lady. She's like, yeah, my son's in there. Um, you, you want to go in there and talk to him. And immediately when I got there, I got this awful feeling right immediately. And I was like, no, just tell him to come out here. Um, so she's like, okay. So she goes up to the house and she yells inside, you know, somebody, somebody's here to see you, whatever. This guy walks out. He's like six, 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 seven, maybe 300 plus pounds. I mean, the guy is huge and I'm, I'm a pretty big guy. I'm, you know, I'm like six, six, one, almost six, two, you know, two ninety three hundred. So I'm, I'm a pretty big guy and this guy is massive. Um, and he comes out and he walks like right up on me. And so I take a step back and I'm like, Hey man, I was, you know, you don't have to walk right up on me. I just, you know, what's going on. And he goes, and he's like, I don't talk to you people. And I go, well, you know, what do you mean, man? And he's like, every time I talk to you guys, you guys don't believe me. And I said, well, I've never been out here. So you, you know, you can give me a shot, you know? And with the craziest dead look in his eye, like, so, like you said, something in his brain wasn't working right. He looks me in the eye and he goes, King Cherokee is telling me to kill you. Oh, gee. And I immediately put my hand on my gun. About that time, my zone partner's pulling up and my zone partner is like, uh, at the time, he's a beast. Like he's like six, 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 seven, however tall he is. And, you know, but he's like shredded, right? Like he, he does mixed martial arts and stuff. So he pulls up and I'm like, all right, this is going to be fine now that, now that he's here. But like, I, I legitimately got really, really worried. But like, so that feeling of like, it's almost just a feeling of pure, like violence. Like you can feel it. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know how to explain it if you've never felt it. But, um, yeah, yeah, it's interesting that you said like the dr- drug addict thing because I've experienced it with with people that are uh, EDP and it is it that's like the worst feeling, yeah, it's it's like the like a governor in the brain has been turned off, you know, whatever yeah. thing keeps us from just constantly murdering and eating each other is like, oh God, in that guy that that switch is flipped <laughs> like, like, and I don't know how it. like. The house was super creepy too. It was like a super, it was like an older rancher style house. Um, And you just think to yourself, like, I don't know how this older lady can close her eyes and go to sleep at night with this guy in her house who talks to the ghost of Cherokee Indians. And he's massive. Like, dude, he could, he could have killed her so easily so quickly and it was and it seemed like one of those situations where the mom really like the uh, the i don't know if this was the case but like it seemed like a situation of like the kid was like one of those kids he was super huge so none of her family like none of her brothers and sisters wanted their kids to be around him because he was crazy and he was big and he could hurt them and like you know she didn't have a husband and like so it's like she's been left alone with this kid who in her family's kind of abandoned her. So it was like one of those situations where like he could have like gone in there to her room when she was sleeping, killed her and nobody would have known. He would have been living in the house of the dead person for like, it's like one of those stories like for like a year or something before anybody even realized that his mom is dead in there. Yeah. It was like one of those, man. It was very, very. Ugh. No, nah, but I, I got, I totally understand the feeling. 
I didn't know you were uh, law enforcement. Like talking about ghost stories, that's one of my favorite subgenre of ghost stories. Is uh, there's a surprisingly high number of uh, ghost stories told by law enforcement for when they got called out for things. You know, they uh, the a common one is like like uh, you get like a domestic abuse call. Like you know, I don't know what's going on in the house next door to me, but it sounds like this woman's being murdered, and the cops would show up, and nobody lives in the house. Right, you know, like things like that. Yeah. My favorite was one I heard uh, the uh, uh, that Border Patrol tells. I forget exactly where this was. This might have been in Texas, um, or Southern California, maybe. But uh, but anyway, there was this Border Patrol agent, and uh, you know they would go out, and mainly what they did was uh, they would catch people who were sneaking across the border, right? And there was this one guy who, um, this one agent who would always. He'd always bring water and food out for these people um, before doing whatever it is they, you know, I don't know if they brought him in and put him in a cell or immediately turned around and sent him back. I don't don't remember how they handle that. But, you know, he, after the trek through the desert and everything, he, you know, a lot of times it was women and children. He wanted to make sure they were okay. And um, he got, he got shot by um, some drug smugglers one night and, uh, um, fell off uh shot and fell off a cliff and died and starting after that they would constantly constantly the border patrol would find like a group of people who had uh uh snuck across the border and they would just be hanging out like they were waiting for someone and when they would question them they would describe that particular border patrol agent had stopped them and told them to wait there and then would like disappear back into the brush and like like constantly for years people were telling stories about this agent who had died and they would describe him to a t and they would bring people back to the office and they would show him a picture of this guy and they'd be like yeah that was him where is he you know <laughs> like Jeez. um and then it all stopped when the guy that they thought had been the one who shot and killed him was smuggling drugs again and they found him dead, fallen off that same cliff. And then after that, what? no one saw that ghost again. No one reported seeing that Border Patrol agent again. But so this isn't this isn't like teenagers, you know, checking out an abandoned house. This is United States Border Patrol agents telling yeah. these stories, you know. And that just like that that story always blew me away. Like, well, I'll give you my creepiest experiences as law enforcement. So. There's a house. UT owns some farmland um, off Alcoa Highway, just past the Motor Mile, um, in between the Motor Mile and like Green Acres Flea Market. Um, And it's kind of off to itself. And one night, and I worked evening shift, so it's late. It's probably like midnight or something. Um, And I get a call to go out to a house out there. Um, And I hadn't been on. I'd just gotten on solo patrol. So unlike LA or New York and some of these bigger metropolitan areas, uh, all of those police officers usually have a partner in the car with them. Um, in smaller communities, for, for people that don't know, you'll go through the FTO program uh, with a senior officer and you'll ride with them and they'll ride with you. And that process um, lasts for a, a few months. But uh, eventually you become solo patrol, which means you're, you're out by yourself. And so I'm in, I'm in zone three. It's not my normal zone. Um, in zone three, 
is sort of the um, uh, I'm trying to describe like the old Knoxville Highway uh, to like Alcoa Highway area, so like the Eagleton area and, and places like that in the county. So that that's sort of zone three, and that's not my normal zone. I never work it. The guy who usually does is like out on vacation or something. So um, I get a call. Uh, a, on the radio and it's like 383 um, lady states that somebody's in her house you know yada 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 a uh, pretty pretty to like disturbing call right so you know I'm like okay show me in route and I immediately on the radio immediately somebody says don't go to that house by yourself and then my phone starts to ring um, and some of my some of my friends who are on the force are like hey we're not closed. Just sit, you know, somewhere on Alcoa highway and we'll catch up to you. We'll all go together. Don't go there by yourself. Um, and you go, we get, we get there. And it's like the super old house. And there's like this, there's like a barn and it's super, it's pitch, but it's country dark. And for the, for the people that live in the city and don't know what country dark is in the County, there are no street lights, right? There are, there are no lights at all. Right. And this place is pitch black. Uh, there's a big, huge white barn. Both the doors are open. There's like a black abyss inside of these doors. Um, so we pull up and we get out of our cars and in the house, there's one light on and everything else. And there's like sheep that are loose or goats or whatever you want to call it. So it's like, it's like really creepy. They're like, man, you can hear the little bells moving and, it's it's so quiet out there and the air is really thick and it, it's in the middle of summer so the air is really thick and it's really hot and and so we you know i go up to the door i knock on the door nothing and so the windows are not directly at eye level they're a little bit higher so you kind of have to stand off of the house a little bit to see in and so I go to where the light is um, and the light is on in like a kitchen, but it's not like a kitchen in a sense that you would think it's like a, like one of those butcher block tables in the center of the room, like a really old refrigerator up against the wall that looks like it's from like the 1950s or the 1940s with the big bulky handles, uh, silver handle on it. Um, and there's a lady and her back is to the window. And I flashing my light in the thing and she's not moving at all, man. I mean, she's perfectly still, perfectly still. And in relation, just to like give a little bit of context, the way the house is laid out, I'm on the side of the house. And in relation, the front door isn't centered on the house. It's more on the left side of the house. Uh, so the front door is kind of like on the opposite side of where this window is. So the lady's just standing there. I, her back's towards me. I'm shining my light. I'm like, hello, miss. Did you call? Did you call? And I swear on everything. I turned around to look at my buddies and I say, do you guys see this lady? And as soon as I turned around, it couldn't have been two seconds. The front door opens and it, it's like one of the really creaky screen doors. <laughs> And I look back in the window. The lady's gone. She's at the front door. It took her two seconds. And she goes, what are you guys doing here? I said, man, we got a call 
Um, is, is somebody in the house? No, it's just me in there. I was sleeping. I said, ma'am, you were just in the kitchen. She goes, no, I just got out of bed and come down here. Cause I heard you knocking. And I was like, uh, okay, so you're good. And she goes, yeah, I'm fine. And I said, all right, sorry to bother you. I got in my car as fast as I could, went back in service. Later on, me and my friends met up to, to eat dinner because, of course, we're evening shifts, so we eat dinner like at Taco Bell at like midnight, 1230. Um, it was legitimately the creepiest. I don't know. And the, and the weirdest part is when she answered the door, she didn't turn on the porch light or anything. Everything was dark. So you really like we were in front of her. Like I had walked over there and we were talking to her, but it wasn't like I couldn't give you details about her. Right. So I don't know if it was the lady in the kitchen or not, but super, super, super creepy. Everybody at the sheriff's office knows about that place. Um, whenever we get calls, it's even in uh, the communication center. Um, never go alone. It doesn't matter if it's for like a theft call. It doesn't matter what it's for. You never go to that house alone. Um, and it is just crazy, crazy, creepy out there. And in the road to get there is so long. Like you're, it literally is pavement and then it's dirt road for like five minutes. So, so other officers have had creepy encounters like that there too. From what I had heard, I'd never heard about any of the encounters, but everybody knew that it was like some weird old lady who lived there by herself. Oh man. Weird. And they have gotten like similar calls. Hey, somebody's in the house and you know, uh, comm center says every time it sounds like an older woman who's calling and saying somebody's in her house. So I don't know exactly what the circumstances are like surrounding that, but it was, that's probably for me, like my, my law enforcement, like um, my years in law enforcement, that has to be probably the creepiest thing. Um, that had ever happened that I couldn't like explain. So interesting story about that. Um, a little backstory on how AFK discussions came to be. So um, Ty, he was working security at my, the building I work at, and um, he's now moved up to the office. We work together. Um, but I said, like, I overheard him talking, and I was like, "Hey, man, you used to be a police officer. Do you know any ghost stories?" And that's pretty much kind of how we met <laughs> do you remember that tie yeah dude so <laughs> crazy dude so crazy but um well brad before i know we've been on for a while but uh do you, do you have a ghost story you want to tell like one last ghost story not an experience or uh maybe one of your own short stories that you want to that you want to go over before we before we call it a night here um yeah so i can either there's a story that's happened to me that I've told a dozen times. I was on a uh, local NPR uh, at Halloween actually telling the story that's pretty creepy. Or I can read you guys one that I wrote uh, that would be a good ghost story for Christmas. But uh, I'll, I'll let the two of you, two of you tell me uh, what you think your listeners would rather hear. Uh, I think uh, the latter would probably be best. I don't think that you shared any of your... Um, or read any of your work on the podcast. So um, definitely give the readers a little taste and uh, the the listeners, sorry, a little taste and something that they might want to go and buy and read themselves and enjoy some of your content. All right. Uh, well, this story is called the Scottish play. 
Um, it's kind of my homage to M.R. James, who I was talking about earlier. It's kind of me um, modernizing and doing my own take on um, an M.R. James ghost story. Um, this was originally published in an anthology called Hell's Comes to Hollywood 2, uh, edited by Eric Miller. Um, it ended up on a lot of uh, best of lists that year. I'm, I'm pretty proud of the story. Um, made uh, made the first round on a few awards. and um, I, <clears throat> It was republished in uh, 2019 in uh, a short fiction collection of mine called Where Carrion Gods Dance, which is all uh, short horror and dark uh, fiction. But uh, I will read it now. <clears throat> the Scottish Play. Every theater has a ghost. I've done Mammoth off-Broadway, Beckett in London's East End, and Noel Coward in a community playhouse in Alabama. From Chicago to Edinburgh, what all these theaters had in common, other than miserable directors and bad lighting, were their ghosts. Chalk it up to throwing a group of people with overactive imaginations into a dark building for nights on end, but I've yet to visit a theater that wasn't reputed to house the dead. In 2003, we leased a 99-seater off Santa Monica Boulevard in Los Angeles. Theater Row, the area is called. Our building was a nondescript beige box, a chain-link fence drifting from one corner to surround a 10-space parking lot. From the outside, without the banners and posters and makeshift marquee, it could have been mistaken for a dentist's office. The lobby was cozy, a burgundy sofa against one wall and a ticket counter against the other. Past the ticket counter, double doors painted to masquerade as cherry wood opened onto a small landing, crowded with blue seats and the dry scent of old paper. The next few rows spilled downward until stopping before the stage. It was small but adequate, a simple concrete floor painted cobalt, chips here and there revealing the black underneath. Our ghost was named Sidney. If a cool breeze kicked up some papers or someone heard a strange noise, it was blamed on him. The story was that Sidney was a silent film actor who, after failing to make the transition to talkies, hanged himself in the house that used to sit on the spot. Sidney was said to be a playful ghost, kind-hearted and happy simply to be noticed. This story is not about Sidney. Peter and I loved the place. We named it Theater Obscura and planned to put rising talent to work before they were snatched up by soap operas and cat food commercials. We had a great group that first year and performed everything from 10 West to Noises Off. Opening night was always sold out. To congratulate ourselves, Peter and I took a honeymoon at the end of the year. We weren't really married, this was years before that issue even hit the courts, but had been together for almost a decade and thought it deserved something special. The plan was to start in Italy and make our way north to the village in Scotland where Peter's grandparents were born. It was to be a calm and relaxing break from the pressures of running a business. And it was up until we phoned the theater from Brighton to check on things. What do you mean, cease and desist? Peter scratched his scalp. Uh-huh. And why the hell did you do that? I see. When he hung up the phone, we ordered two pints of lager and took a corner booth at the pub. Well, he sighed. James, we've been blacklisted from the dramatist's playbook. What? That's ridiculous. Why would we? Because Terry, that miserable fuck, decided to make Estragon a woman. Has he ever read Godot? It seems he has not. He sucked down half of his lager and wiped his mouth. They received a cease and desist letter that he neglected to tell us about and which he promptly ignored. Now we've been denied access to half of all the plays out there. Terry was an ambitious director who unfortunately lacked the talent and vision he told everyone he had. 
We'd left him in charge of a production of Waiting for Godot, the hamlet of modern theater, while we were gone. When acquiring the rights to produce a play, the playwright often has stipulations that go along with it, choices the director is allowed to make and choices they aren't. The Samuel Beckett estate does not allow a change in gender of the characters or rewriting of any dialogue. And yet Terry, who we had spoken to before about his penchant for stunt casting, had decided to flaunt those prescriptions and violate the contract we had signed. The punishment was devastating. Being blacklisted from the dramatist's playbook could potentially cripple the theater. It would mean the inability to stage a majority of the plays out there. Terry had pissed all over our grand little enterprise to stroke his own ego. We have to fly back, David said. He downed the rest of his beer and slammed the mug under the table. God damn it. The other patrons glanced at us and went back to their business. I'll go, I said. Huh? I'll go. I'll take the train to Heathrow tomorrow morning and you can head up to Scotland. I can't ask you to do that. I took his hand. I want to. I couldn't forgive myself if you came this close to seeing where your family's from and then you were taken away. Are you sure? Positive. His smile was worth the fee the airline charged for changing my ticket. Back in Los Angeles, my first task was to fire Terry. He didn't take it well. You can't fire me! Terry was a large man with arms like timber. I can and I have. Please leave. You little cocksucker, he said, shifting his weight between the balls of his feet and flexing his fingers. I was afraid he was going to hit me. I'm sure he would have if the cast hadn't been there at the time. Someone jumped at the sound of the C word, but Terry was gay and I didn't flinch. He'd always made jokes about how effeminate Peter and I were, as though our slight frames and fondness for musicals made us negative stereotypes. Perhaps we were stereotypes, but at least we had some kind of talent. He stared at me, nostrils flaring, before glancing around the room at the others. He tossed his script at my face and stomped from the theater, smacking the double doors hard enough on the way out to rip one from its bottom hinge. I spent hours over the next week groveling to both the Beckett estate and the dramatist's playbook. I managed to avoid a lawsuit, but couldn't regain immediate access to their plays. We were put on a one-year suspension, meaning for the next 12 months we couldn't perform anything that would actually put butts in the seats. Fine, Peter said when I told him over the phone. We can work with that. How? We'll do Shakespeare. Shakespeare? In Los Angeles? Why not? Shakespeare has everything. Sex, violence, the occult. The occult? Yeah, why don't we do Macbeth? Shh, don't say that. I'm at the theater. That particular work of the Bards is cursed. As legend goes, muttering its title inside a theater will doom the production to tragedy. Actors simply refer to it as the Scottish play as a result. Peter laughed. You know, I'm only about ten miles from his castle. Whose castle? Macbeth's. Glom's castle, really? Yeah. Listen, why don't you hold auditions and I'll direct it when I'm back? I don't know. I wasn't into the idea for a number of reasons, the curse being only one of them. But Peter had a gift for whittling down my resolve to nothing. Before I had even agreed to it, I knew the only way the conversation would end was with me rolling over and giving in. We found our cast and Peter came home to direct. I picked him up at LAX and drove straight to the theater for the table read. He threw the doors open, tossed his luggage to the ground, and leaped onto a chair with the type of energy that made me fall for him in the first place. The actors laughed and stared up at him, eyes wide, waiting for some grand speech. Peter pulled a leather pouch from his pocket and tossed it onto the table. What's that? Banquo asked. That, Peter said as he stepped down and sat, is Earth from Macbeth's grave. Someone gasped, whether at the grisly trophy or mention of the name, I'm not sure. Lady Macbeth poked it with a pin. Really? Indeed it is, Peter said, or close enough to it. I just returned from Scotland, where I had the misfortune of visiting Glom's castle. While there, I stole a handful of dirt from the cemetery. 
This was par for the course with Peter. He'd stolen dirt from Caesar's grave in Rome, from the amphitheater in Pompeii, and from the grounds of a 13th century monastery in France. It was his alternative to photographs. Pagan, in a way, but he had spent his entire life in the theater. It was impossible not to develop eccentricities. Everyone made the prerequisite jokes about how morbid it was, about the curse, and about Terry's Godot, waiting for god-awful, one of the witches said. And then the table read started. I left them to it and went to the office to crunch numbers and plan our promotional strategy. Our office was located behind the stage. To reach it, you had to enter through a door behind the box office and walk down a long, narrow hallway spanning the length of the theater. At the end of the hall, you could take a left to go backstage, a right for the bathroom, or head straight into the office. There were two red lights hanging midway through the hall, dull bulbs that barely kept us from ricocheting off the cramped walls. We kept the door to the office open and a lamp burning inside like a lighthouse. This time, the hallway was dark aside from the dim red glow. The office door must have been closed. I flipped through my keys, searching for the key to the office. The booming voice of our Scottish lord sounded through the wall. Two heavy footsteps stomped in front of me. I looked up, expecting to see Peter or one of the actors. The hallway was empty, the door to the office wide open, the lamp on. For an instant, I thought I had seen someone standing in front of the door, someone large enough to block the light. I thought of Terry, and my stomach nodded. The shadows shifted, that's all. I shrugged it off and went to work. After the table read, when we were locking up, Peter asked what I thought. I didn't watch it. I had too much work to do. I was in the office for most of the play. No, you weren't. I laughed. I think I know where I was. You were sitting in the back row. I saw you. You didn't see me. I saw someone. I mentioned the footsteps in the hallway. Peter frowned. We should give the place a once-over before locking up. There are scores of homeless on Santa Monica, and we've had to escort more than a few from the theater. We searched every room, every storage area, and crawl space, but the theater was empty. Maybe it was someone who came with one of the actors, I said. A boyfriend or roommate or someone. Must have been. He didn't sound so sure. We locked up and went home. That was to be my one strange experience at the theater. Two days later, I slipped while walking through the rows of seats and fell down the stairs. I fractured my leg in three places and was confined to home for the bulk of the production. On the way home from the hospital, I joked that it was Peter's fault for saying the title out loud. Luckily, most of the work I needed to do could be accomplished from my laptop, and Peter hired a student named Nikki to act as a stage manager in my place. Peter was at the theater day and night. This was typical when he directed a production. He lived in the space, and while I missed him, I didn't think much of it. Sydney came to watch us again, he said one night while crawling into bed. What? We saw the figure in the back row again today. I ran to see who it was, but when I got there, the seat was empty. The cast thinks it's Sydney. This became a standard nighttime greeting during the Scottish play. It seems Sydney was a big fan. As rehearsal went on, Peter would come in later and later. Skin ashen, eyes surrounded by sagging purple. Coughing fits would wake him in the middle of the night. You're running yourself ragged, I said over breakfast one morning. Slow down. I'm fine. I've just caught a cold is all. I wasn't so sure, but I knew Peter well enough to know his pattern. While the play rehearsed, his life would be consumed by it. Once it went up and no longer needed so much of his time, he'd relax and take care of everything he let slip, including his health. Doctor appointments were never made until a show was on its feet. On the night of dress rehearsal, Peter never came to bed. I woke around three in the morning to find him in the living room, a bottle of scotch in one hand and the television remote in the other. The television was on some reality show, the bare breasts of an orange-skinned woman covered by a blurred bar and the volume muted. 
The blue glow cast harsh shadows against Peter, and I was shocked at how horrible he looked. Seeing him every day, I hadn't noticed until that moment just how much weight he'd lost. Are you okay? He turned the television off and leaned back in his chair. I don't know. I sat on the sofa next to him and took his hand. We were quiet for a long while. He took a deep breath and asked, Do you think I'm off? Off? Crazy. No, why would I think that? Eyes quivering, lips pressed tight, he nodded. All right. All right. What happened? He stared at her hands wrapped together. Closing his eyes, he told me what had happened. If it had been anyone else, I would have thought they were crazy. But Peter wasn't afraid of anything, and while he was imaginative and eccentric in many ways, he was never naive and rarely superstitious. That morning, he said, he'd gone to the theater early. He was at the computer, sifting through emails, when he heard the double doors bang open. His breath caught in his throat. It was too early for Nikki to be out of class, and aside from me, no one else had keys to the theater. Heart pounding, skin hot as fevered death, he couldn't understand why he was so anxious. The air was alive, he said, and even telling me what had happened, I could see sweat beating on his arms. The energy in the theater was the nervous fear that filled dressing rooms before a performance. Expectant, hesitant, pregnant with anticipation. A prop sword leaned against the desk. He gripped it tight, his knuckles white, and stepped onto the stage. It was quiet, the low rumble of the air conditioner the only sound. The house lights were dark, and a single lamp rinsed the floor of the set. He marched up to the double doors and propped them open. The lobby was empty. He double-checked the lock on the front door and, satisfied it was in place, made his way back down the long hall, convinced he'd misinterpreted a noise from the alley behind the theater. He went back to the computer and replied to an email. The smell of wet earth drifted into the office, and he worried the air conditioning was about to go. There was a sound at the end of the hallway. He stopped typing and listened. It happened again, a soft scratch against the wall. Rats, he thought, made a note to call an exterminator. The scratching grew loud, frenzied, the sound of claws scrambling over the ground. It reminded him of when our terriers would race across the hardwood floors, their claws unable to gain traction. He grabbed the sword again, afraid that a massive rat made its way toward him. He stared into the shadows swirling in the hall, split and punctuated by the dull red lights, expecting to see something the size of a tabby racing his way. The scratching continued, the claws slipping, scrambling to regain footing, pulling the thing along through the black. It broke into a pool of red cast by the backstage lights. Larger than a dog, it was closer to the size of a human torso. He described it as shadow pulled into shape from its place on the wall, a rustling, roiling black that caved in like an empty coat in the center, long arms like gnarled tree limbs twisting before it, rapidly pawing at the ground to pull it along. He slammed the door and leaned against it. A thud hit like a fist, its weight rocking him, and the scratching continued at the door. The smell of wet earth clogged his nostrils, the scent of moldy, damp cloth riding along with it. Peter couldn't breathe, couldn't think, could only lean against the door, eyes shut, sword gripped tight to his chest, praying that it would leave, would drip back into whatever grime-filled hole it had crawled from. The scrambling climbed the door. It hit the ceiling, and he could hear it scratch and paw and fight its way back down the hall from above, slipping back into the black and eventually, thankfully, going silent. He slid down the door and sat there for an hour, 
his back pressed against it like a blockade, waiting for Nikki to come and let herself in. He played it off when she did, pretended he had taken a nap in the office, and told himself it was nerves, that the stress of everything was getting to him. He resolved to take a break when the play was done, and not to mention the incident to anyone, even me. Especially me, I suspected, and felt guilty for it. I ran my finger along his arm, damp with sweat. I expected it to be hot. Said it was cool, like leather in the fall. Jesus, Peter. He held up a hand, the same gesture he made when giving direction, and an actor began to ask questions. He'd always hated to be interrupted, hated to let his mind slip from wherever it was. I was quiet. He sucked in a trembling breath and continued. After the dress rehearsal, he found himself alone in the theater again. Nikki had to leave by 10 to pick a friend up from the airport, and the rest of the cast wanted to get a good night's sleep before returning the next morning for one final run-through. With opening night less than 24 hours away, there was too much to do for Peter to give in to what he had convinced himself was a hallucination fueled by sleep deprivation and energy drinks. He had seen the shape in the hall, he knew he had, but he refused to make the thing real, as though thinking of it as anything more than a hallucination would call it back from wherever it hid. Like saying the name of Macbeth, he said. He asked Vince, our King Duncan, to search the theater with him before locking up, not wanting to be surprised by a homeless man looking for a place to nap, and then triple-checked the locks on the front door after Vince left. He propped open the double doors, turned the house lights on, and placed a Paul Simon CD into the theater's sound system. He went back to the office, locked the door, and certain the sword was by his desk, poured over the list of pre-sold tickets. He gathered up everything he could do at home and shoved it into his messenger bag, leaving him with exactly 15 minutes worth of work before he could leave the theater. He took deep breaths, partly to stay calm, and partly to check for the scent of dirt and mold. When he finished, he powered down the computer, threw his bag over one shoulder, and grabbed the sword. He threw the door open, feeling ridiculous with the prop held out like he challenged the knight to a duel. The shadows beyond his yellow lamp seemed thinner than they had that morning, weaker against the red glow. Grabbing the remote control for the sound system, he didn't kill the CD until he was at the open doors to the lobby, afraid to hear the scratching, scrambling claws racing toward him, confident in his assumption that if he did not give the idea of the thing credence, it would not bother him. It hit him as the music vanished, and silence rushed in that it had not needed thoughts of it to bring it crawling from the dark that morning. Rather than use the light board backstage, he closed the double doors to the house and flipped the breakers for that section of the theater off. An electric hum that he didn't realize he'd been listening to wind down to nothing and vanished. The front door was ten feet from him, the light to the lobby right there at the door, the street light outside shining down on the entranceway, illuminating the cracked pavement, oil-splattered fast food bags stuffed against the gutter. Cars zoomed by, and he felt safe in the arms of the city in her bustling nightlife. He marched to the door, unlocked it, and flipped the lobby light off. It had been hiding there, wrapped in illumination like a straitjacket that ripped away with the flipping of that switch, its black shape devouring the light from outside. It flapped like fabric in the wind, the rustling of linen echoing in the lobby as it reached for him. He fell against the wall, grasping for the light but missing, his fingernails scraping down the switchplate as it came for him. The height of a man on his knees, the mangled shape of sheets twisted in the wash, headless, not the form of a person but moving steel like someone racing on hobbled feet, its center whipped like a flag, something like an arm but knotted and brittle grasping for his face. He closed his eyes and turned away as the smell of earth and mold and stale water filled him. It brushed his forehead, 
touch like soggy wool rotted to almost nothing pressed against his skin. It was fever warm, thick with illness, and he cried out. Falling to all fours, desperate to break contact with it, he scrambled to the entrance, his hands slipping on the floor. He shouldered the door and rolled out onto the pavement, was on his feet before he realized he stood and fought to lock the door behind him. Through the glass, the lobby was empty. I realized at some point during the story I'd taken my hand away. Peter gripped it again and took several deep breaths, jaw trembling. Then he fell against me and cried. In ten years, I'd seen Peter cry once at his father's funeral. I held him now until he cried himself out and then held him longer. Words that would make sense of what happened, that would bring comfort or sanity to his ordeal, were not in my vocabulary. Silent, I brought him a glass of wine and sat with him until sunrise, our eyes glued to the muted television. Three days later, two shows into the play's run, Peter was rushed to the hospital. I came as soon as Nikki called, but it was too late. Cerebral edema, the doctor said. Fluid leaked into his skull and put pressure on his brain. It was quick and painless, they assured me. When pressed for how, they said it was likely genetic and exacerbated by stress. When asked why, they had nothing to say. After his funeral, I opted not to renew our lease. Shakespeare's Scottish tragedy had been our final show, and true to its legend, the theater died when it closed. On the final day of our lease, I came to pack up what was left of our things and put them in storage. I didn't realize it until then, but I hadn't spent more than a few minutes inside since Peter's death and never alone. There had always been a friend or Nikki or one of the dozens of actors who had performed there while it thrived. I was surprised by how many of them came to pay Peter respects. Many assured me that we had created something special here. The theater obscura had carved out a place in their hearts and would always be with them. Peter would have liked that. In the office, the computer gone and posters taken down, I felt his loss more than ever. Throwing his things into a box, I couldn't help but cry. Pictures of us, cast photos, Peter's pin cup painted with our crude logo. All of it stabbed me as hard and painfully as if the Scottish Lord mistook me for Duncan. Peter would never see any of it again, would never write with those pens, never hang those posters, and that thought made concrete the loss. It's odd how the absence of someone can be a palpable thing, almost tangible in its heaviness, and it pressed down on me then, sought to crush me into the ground. The leather pouch he had brought back from Scotland sat in the top drawer of the desk. Gripping it in my hand, it felt warm and fleshy, like a recently removed heart. Why did this happen now? I'd asked a day before he died, my leg healed enough to walk on crutches and help at the theater. We've had this place for so long. I don't know, he'd said and shook his head. I really don't. Let's not talk about it, okay? Not here. Holding the bag of grave dirt in my hand, I shivered. I threw it into a box with spools of blank CDs and extra printer cartridges. It sat in that box through the years since, locked away in a storage container in Van Eyes, until the drinking and the pills became too weak to numb me. Now it's on my desk in front of my monitor as I type, the air around it alive, expectant. I don't know what's going to happen. Don't know if it'll come for me like it did Peter. But after I write this, I plan to open the bag and pour its contents onto the bed we shared, spread it over the sheets we tangled ourselves in every morning. Wherever Peter is now, all I can think about is following him. It had brushed his forehead, and then he died. Peter had never been superstitious, but I am. 
I never walk under ladders, and I never say the name of that play. Say it, he teased in the car ride from the airport when he returned. No, do it, he tickled my ribs. I knocked his hand away. I'm not going to, chicken. Lying in dirt stolen from a Scottish cemetery. A photograph, a photograph of us in Rome framed on my nightstand. I'll turn off the lights and this one time whisper into the dark. Macbeth, I'll say. The end. Dude, dude, that was so good, dude. Oh, oh my man. God. Like, I'm not going to lie. I was like, my heart was pounding. I was anxious. The air conditioner, uh, the heater kicked on and the door like, like made a noise. And I like turned around really quickly. Dude, Brad. Oh, my <laughs> God, dude. Awesome. That was so good, dude. Awesome. And I'm it's such a good it. read, too, man. Gosh. Awesome. I'm glad you dug that one. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm partial it was, to that one. I think it's uh, it's it's pretty creepy and kind of sad. <laughs> it was really, really good, man. It was awesome. Very, very well written, man. Very, very well written. I, I uh, admittedly, I hadn't um, looked at a ton of your works. Um, after that, <laughs> dude, I gotta, I've got to dig in, man. I've got to dig yeah. in. That was. That was super nope. awesome. Yeah, I mean, I've I've written a lot of horror. Not everything I write is horror. My uh, my last novel that came out, Life on the sixty four Bus, is kind of a comedic adventure. Um, uh, you know, I used to do a lot of comedy. I did stand up and ran a sketch comedy group for a while. So you know, I always have a saucy yeah. place for uh for comedy. But uh, but yeah, like uh, uh I uh I uh some some of my favorite stuff I've written is uh is definitely in the horror genre it's it's a it's a love i will always return to a a dark twisted love <laughs> which very let's well, be honest very good all the best loves are dark and twisted so right <laughs> right no very very good man well uh brad thank you so 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 much for coming back on the podcast uh thanks for sharing your experiences thanks for reading your short stories um it's always a pleasure thank you so much for uh teaching the listeners why we we sit around and tell ghost stories on christmas um but before we go guys i do want to say uh, i do want to remind you go check out reaper apparel reaperapparel.com use code afk discussions for a discount um, and go check out some of brad's work um simply 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 amazing brad thank you again so much for coming on the show man oh thank you guys for having me on i always have a blast uh hopping on and chatting with you anytime you want me you want me back on let me know Yes, sir. Awesome, dude. Awesome. You guys have a Merry Christmas. We'll see you guys later. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, guys. Peace. Rip, rip, rip.